Welcome to the show. Glad to have you. Glad uh, to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So uh, yeah, we I think we each have a few questions, but we'll you know for the sake of time, just get right into it. Um, so to start off, um, why don't you tell us a bit about like the positive impact you're able to make on San Francisco? Maybe some places you uh, you know wish you could have done more or didn't go far enough. For sure. Well, just you know, for for a little context, I was elected in 2019, took office in 2020. Uh, to what was supposed to be a four-year term. And, um, you know, I was recalled in the middle of my term. The recall effort started really within days of of my inauguration. And, you know, one of the things that's, that's a little frustrating for me, of course, is, we, you know, we expected to have four years. That's what we were elected to. And we know that changing things like public safety or crime trends is um, really multifaceted, multifactored. It doesn't happen overnight. Um, it doesn't often happen even in a full first term. But when I first got sworn in, just two months after that, we had the COVID pandemic shut down our courthouse, shut down our office, and really redefine the way all of us live our lives. And so it made a, a really, really major uh, hurdle for us to try to overcome. And then I spent much of my term trying to fend off these recalls. So it, it was ultimately a major distraction to what we Hope to get accomplished, even though we never expected we'd achieve all of our goals in one or two or even three years. Um, that being said, I'm really proud of a lot of the stuff we did accomplish, including a more proactive approach to public safety. You know, a traditional prosecutor will wait for a crime to be committed and then hope the police make an arrest. And if they do, they'll try to punish the person who got caught. And the problem with that, of course, is that we're, we're only relying on deterrence through more and more increasingly punitive responses to what ends up being a really small percentage of people who actually get arrested for crimes. We tried to be proactive in a number of ways. One was just to take an example from a category that I find personally to be the most threatening and the most dangerous, um, not just in San Francisco, but across the country, which is gun violence. Instead of waiting for police to bring us a gun case or a shooting case, um, we looked at the data and we saw that the vast majority of, of, of gun crimes and increasingly were related to what we call ghost guns, guns that have no serial number that are manufactured with the with really with the design that they be untraceable, um, that they not have to go through the normal background checks or controls before they're purchased. Um, in other words, guns that are designed to be used in crimes. And we saw that trend in San Francisco and California across the country. And so instead of just sitting back and being reactive when a new gun case came our way, we went after the manufacturers of ghost guns. In fact, we sued three separate companies that are profiting by dumping illegal firearms into the hands of criminals. That proactive approach is something I'm really proud of. And we did it in a number of other areas. Um, but let me talk about another uh, totally, totally different uh, achievement that I'm proud of. And that's the historic expansion of our victim services work. Too often in this country's criminal legal system, the interests of victims are really reduced to punishment and vengeance. And victims are only uplifted, their voice is only amplified when they're calling for the death penalty or for life without parole. We know that victims have lots and lots of needs and, and they're not all the same. Um, different survivors have different desires. Um, but we do a really terrible job in this country of providing the resources to, for example, reimburse medical bills or provide for therapy or trauma-informed care to pay for burial and funeral expenses. Basic things that survivors or families of victims of violent crime desperately need, 
simply aren't there because we're too focused on building new jails and prisons and on punitive responses. Now, they're not mutually exclusive. We can seek a prison sentence against someone and also provide for reimbursement for medical expenses for the victim, right? Um, but that whole area of work that we did, providing housing for domestic violence survivors, providing transportation for victims who needed to get to a place of safety, providing language access for survivors of crime that don't speak English so they can understand the, the, the proceedings in their case. Those are areas where we made massive expansions. Um, and I'm really proud of, of that work as well. Um, happy to talk about other achievements and, and work I'm proud of, but I know you have other questions, so let me stop there. Yeah, I think that that was all very informative. Um, we wouldn't really have gotten a sense from that, though, from media. Um, we, we, you know, we're primarily a media criticism podcast. Uh, and we noticed when we were doing our own episode on this that there was a really intense pushback against what you were trying to do, not only by local groups, which is sometimes the case, but by the entire national press. There was really just heinous coverage, uh, even in fairly liberal papers. Why do you think this is the case? You know, I think there's something sensational about crime and violence. And, um, you know, there's the old adage, if it bleeds, it leads. And, um, you know, we can go back uh, before some of our lifetimes and think of really high profile examples of um, kind of misrepresentations of crime being used in ways that are intentionally political, driving racist divisions between communities of color, um, even shaping the outcome of presidential races, as in the famous case of Willie Horton. Um, so these aren't new phenomena, they're not specific to me or to San Francisco, really as part of a playbook we see across the country where police unions, Republicans, their allies will use fear mongering. They will exploit tragedies, the kind of tragedies, to be clear, that occur in every jurisdiction in this country. But in jurisdictions where we're talking about criminal justice reform or police accountability or corporate accountability, those tragedies will be exploited in ways that um, really conflate criminal justice reform with lack of safety. You never see that happen in red jurisdictions. You never see it happen to traditional prosecutors who serve often as a mouthpiece for the police, who serve in ways that are really reactive to crime rather than proactive about prevention. Um, and one of the things that, that I learned you know, over the last couple of years and that we've seen across this country is that you know, whether it's me in San Francisco, Larry Krasner in Philadelphia, George Gascon in Los Angeles, Kim Fox in Chicago, Rachel Rollins in Boston, so many others who are trying to really redefine how we do the work of public safety, how prosecutors' role is understood to really be a lawyer for the people, to really lift up victims and really hold the powerful accountable, to enforce laws equally. When you start doing that, when you prosecute billionaires for wage theft, when you prosecute police for excessive force, you make very powerful enemies. And they are able to amplify crimes, again, that occur in every jurisdiction, right? I mean, San Francisco has, has always been and continues to be a very, very safe city. But we're a city. We have wealth inequality. We have far too easy access to firearms. We have lots of things that lead to crime. And what happened under my administration, as we've seen in other progressive jurisdictions, is crime gets weaponized in ways that just doesn't happen in traditional or red jurisdictions. And um, they did it really effectively. Look, I mean, the police union has a couple thousand members. And everywhere in San Francisco, they respond to crimes. And under my administration, you know, they, they go up and they talk to victims and they say, oh, I'm so sorry this happened to you. I wish we could help. But, you know, this DA just won't prosecute. Don't forget to vote in the recall. 
And that's a, a really difficult kind of a, a communications war to respond to when they have those kinds of numbers, that level of direct first response access to victims and no real accountability because it's not documented. They turn off their body cameras. Um, it's a very challenging. Um, and of course, they're also leaking stories and information and victim contact information to news media. And, and let's be clear, most victims are angry. You don't buy I don't blame them for that. You've just had your house burglarized. You've just survived a sexual assault. Your son's just been murdered. Of course you're angry. And, you know, police and, and some media outlets are really good at exploiting that anger and that, that, that harm, that fear, um, and using it to channel um, very particular political outcomes. I want to talk about a, a very specific uh, framing that they've made a lot of hay out of, which is the press pretty consistently was trying to say, look, San Francisco is this overwhelmingly democratic city. Uh, everyone there is so progressive, but even they, even far left San Francisco, you know, couldn't handle this radical leftist uh, insurgency. And, and they're really trying to say, um, you know, third way triangulation and conservative democratic politics uh, are the solution, that that was somehow the obvious return to form. Um, you know, what, what's the problem with that narrative, you think? There's a lot of things wrong with that narrative. It's really dishonest in a lot of ways. So let me give you a couple of points. I mean, one thing is, you know, San Francisco is a progressive, solidly democratic town, but that doesn't mean we don't have our share of conservatives, of Trump supporters, of, of folks who may be registered as Democrats, but maybe would be Republicans in a place like Ohio or Pennsylvania, where there's a viable Republican party, right? Um, look, you don't need to go any further than the last presidential election. 55,000 San Franciscans voted for Trump. For point of comparison, when I was elected in 2019, I was elected with 86,000 votes, including second and third choice, because we do rank choice here, right? Um, so support for Trump, the most radical right-wing, offensive, uh, undemocratic Republican president this country's probably ever seen. In San Francisco, even after his first term, there were 55,000 votes for him. Uh, let me pivot to some other data that I think illustrates the, the, the same point, maybe differently, the other side of the coin. I mentioned that when I was elected in 2019 through ranked choice, including first, second, and third choice votes, I had 86,000 votes. That, that was about 42% of the turnout for the DA's race in that election. In 2020, in the recall, Despite two years of a massive media and you know, uh, onslaught, $9 million spent to, um, you know, to attack me and my policies, despite the kind of national environment in which there was this wave of propaganda and, and attacks on progressives and reforms, uh, despite two years of tremendous anxiety around COVID and the pandemic and what that did to all of our lives, um, we actually got more votes than we did in 2019. Right. And, and, and uh, we had over 100,000 votes opposing the recall. That's 15,000 votes more than I got in 2019. And in percentage terms, it was 45% of the vote. And, and that's in a context where we didn't have another candidate to run against. Right. I mean, we had been made a scapegoat. Our policies had been made a scapegoat. I personally had been kind of demonized on Twitter and social media in ways that were totally disproportionate to the power that I or any district attorney has. And yet, the policies that we were advocating, things like reducing juvenile incarceration or our independent innocence commission that exonerated people who'd been wrongly convicted of crimes or um, expanding diversion programs to get folks who were arrested connected, 
with services that address root causes of crime like mental illness and drug addiction. Those kinds of policies, police accountability, our worker protection unit are overwhelmingly popular in San Francisco. I know it because I was out there on the streets talking to voters all day, every day during the campaign. I know it because that's what polls tell us. I know because the recall proponents lied to voters and said they believed in criminal justice reform as well. Um, and yet we were in a very difficult context with no other candidate, no track record, no platform to run against. Um, and uh, as I said, a national environment in which people are frustrated for good reason with how the last two years of our lives have been. So um, I think it's important to recognize San Francisco is both less progressive than it sometimes is portrayed. Um, we've never really had a, a true progressive mayor, for example, at least not in the last 20 years. Um, and it's also true that the progressive base of support that I and my policies had is growing. Yeah, I, I want to speak briefly. I mean, I, I know most uh, outlets made a very brief mention of the Republican billionaire funding the recall effort. Uh, and I think that that certainly is, is a huge part of what happened. But it's also notable that some of the Democratic uh, leadership really was not behind you in the way that you would expect them to have been. Um, London Breed did not really come out behind you. Uh, even Joe Biden didn't say anything until after the election had happened. And even then, he, he basically repeated a lot of these propaganda talking points. Um, what Do you think there's still really room for progressives to work within the Democratic Party and, and to try to, you know, change it for the better? Or are we facing just two, you know, recalcitrant to an opposition here? You know, it's a, it's a good question. It's a tough question. Um, I think, you know, there's definitely room for third party candidates. I think there's also room for a progressive wing of the Democratic Party. And we see, obviously, the platform folks like AOC and Ayanna Pressley and others have, have, have developed. Um, you know, I, I was proud to receive the endorsement of the San Francisco Democratic Party. Um, and, and that endorsement, you know, was overwhelming. Only two members of the party voted, uh, you know, to support the recall against me. And those two members were both people who ran against me for DA in 2019 and lost, right? So um, everybody else either opposed it or just abstained. And of course, I would have loved to have seen more people, you know, it would have been great to have Nancy Pelosi and, um, and and President Biden and Gavin Newsom speak out against the recall of a fellow Democratic elected official. Um, but, you know, I think in a city like San Francisco, where you have, you know, only one party that's capable of winning elections, which is the Democratic Party, it gets infiltrated by a lot of would-be Republicans in other jurisdictions. And, um, and so we have a really conservative or, you know, in local parlance, moderate uh, wing of the Democratic Party. And, and what you end up having in many races is a, a moderate against a progressive um, in the way that in, you know, Connecticut or Ohio or Pennsylvania, you might have a Republican versus Democrat. And, and so that's sort of what we saw in San Francisco was that the moderates, most of the moderates in San Francisco politics refused to take a position one way or the other on the recall and behind the scenes, they supported it. Most of the progressives or you know, other folks who just were looking at substance and data and evidence and not being you know, driven by pure kind of party politics came out against the recall. Um, and that's true of a lot of people who didn't support me a lot of people, a lot of organizations that didn't support me getting elected in 2019, but saw how dishonest the recall was, how much it was just straight up lying to voters, saw where the money was coming from, Republican billionaires overwhelmingly, saw the work that we've been doing in office under really historically difficult circumstances and said he should finish his four-year term. And then voters, not the mayor, should choose who the next district attorney is, whether it's him or someone else. Yeah. Um, I think I think for my part, I'll, I'll just leave with one last uh, sort of bigger picture question that I think you're well positioned to answer, which is, 
Um, you know, there's been a lot of energy for the last few decades on progressive causes. We've had oppositions to the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. We've had Occupy Wall Street, Bernie Sanders attempted uh, elections, the Black Lives Matter movement, and all these different things. But recently, we've been dealing with a Trump administration, conservative Biden administrations, COVID, austerity, you know, elections like your recall, the Roe versus Wade repeal. It feels like, at least recently, it's it's one step forward, two steps back. Um, what would you say to other leftists and progressives, especially younger people who feel kind of hopeless in this moment where they thought they were making headway and now it seems to be slipping away? It's frustrating. I mean, look, I won a four-year term and I got booted from office two and a half years in. So I believe me when I say I feel the frustration, share, share the frustration. Uh, I think it's important to remember a couple of things. One is, and you know, to quote a quote that's some, somewhat almost cliche by now, the arc of history is long, but it bends towards, towards freedom, right? Or it bends towards justice. And um, you know, I, I really do believe that. I think the nature of social change is not linear. It's not it's mostly, if you look at history, it's not super rapid. And when it is super rapid, often it's not sustainable. It doesn't mean we don't have an urgent need for change, especially in areas like mass incarceration or climate change, right? We do, we have an urgent need for action. And yet the nature of our political structures is that the wealthy and the powerful are deeply entrenched and it's not easy to uh, root them out, even when you win elections. Um, so I think, you know, for me, there's a couple lessons. One is, we can't become overly fixated on the specific outcome of a particular election or even a particular policy struggle. We need to think about every election, every policy debate, every movement as part of a broader long-term strategy for education, for inclusion, for coalition building. And um, you know, there's a great book that uh, is sort of a lawyer's lawyer book, but it's called Success Without Victory. And it's about legal struggles, litigation, where the lawyers who filed the cases never really expected that they were going to win in court, that a judge was going to grant what they were requesting, and yet they had success through the process. And I think a lot of movement building, a lot of organizing is like that. Some labor campaigns, maybe you don't unionize, and yet the process can be tremendously empowering. It can be educational. It can achieve uh, concessions from the employer that you never would have gotten but for the work that went into organizing. So I think it's really important to remember that. Um, and I think also from a historical perspective, you know, my parents spent most of my life in prison. My mom did 22 years in prison. My dad did 40 years and was only released about six, seven months ago now. My adoptive brother, Zay Dorn, has a podcast that's out right now that takes a look at that history, the history that led to my parents' incarceration. Um, the kind of does a deep dive on the history of the Weather Underground, the Black Panther Party, the Black Liberation Army in the 60s and 70s, uh, his podcast is called Mother Country Radicals. And it's really worth listening to, both because it's well done and it's a fascinating history, but also because it's a reminder of some of the real risks and perils of letting that frustration and that righteous rage with the slow pace of change, or sometimes feeling like we're moving backwards as in this moment with the US Supreme Court or the recalls against progressives. And remembering that even as correct as our analysis may be, as righteous as our cause may be, tactics and strategy matter, and patience is a virtue. And um, going too far too fast can lead to really dire outcomes that can actually do more damage than good. And I think there's a lot of lessons to be learned from, from those not so distant histories of people like my own parents about mistakes that set the movement back more than they advanced it. You hear that audience? Check that podcast out. You know, that is a perfect transition, uh, Chessa. One, what you're talking about, that lawyer's book, um, it, it, what immediately came to mind for me was something like Scope's Monkey Trial, where even though they know they're going to lose the case, 
they know ultimately because science is on their side, they're going to win the history there, and they and they have. But this is you know to my first question. Um, I think you spoke to it already, but why do you think the media harped so much on our family's history, our you know our family's history with leftist politics, with constitutional lawyering, with as you said that the the, the the salaciousness of the crime? Do you think it was just low hanging fruit for them? Yeah, in some ways. Look, I mean, I think we can all be frustrated with the media coverage we get. I think probably we all are when we see our name in the press. You know, the reporter might think they're doing a puff piece and, you know, we're going to quibble with a couple details or choices of adjectives. Um, obviously, uh, I wish we had different media coverage in San Francisco and in our race. And look, maybe our family's history was a distraction in some ways. Um, I think, you know, big picture, this is also a question of what consumers of media are looking for. And especially in this day and age, you know, we know that um, they can really easily measure clicks and read throughs and conversion rates to subscriptions and I think and I've heard this from a lot of editors um, in, in local press. They've sort of said, look, if your name is in the headline, it, it generates clicks. And so even if we're writing a story about crime in Oakland, which isn't your jurisdiction, if we work your name in there, more people are going to read it. And so, you know, on the one hand, we can be upset at journalists or, 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 or mainstream media for that. But in some ways, it's also more a reflection of the of the kind of trends and what people are clicking on and reading and I think that's a broader conversation about the failures of education, about the ways in which social media have really reduced a lot of policy conversations that need to be nuanced and need to be in the weeds to sound bites and, and to headlines. Um, and that's an area where, for better or worse, I don't think I or you know maybe the broader progressive movement has done a great job. I think we're often too analytical um, in ways that might be full of integrity and, and honesty, but often lose uh, the ability to connect to folks who maybe aren't going to take the time to become experts on policy issues. I think that's a good answer. Um, I think you've also answered my next question, but I'll, I'll see if I can pose in a way that we can maybe tease out some more ideas. Um, what role do you think the pandemic played in undermining your work, which I think you've addressed a little bit, but um, do you also think that the wealthy opponents who organized your recall essentially were able to successfully launder the social struggles of COVID as somehow your fault, your failures, the, the failure of your policies? So I think, you know, as with most issues and, and maybe uh, as an example of my, uh, my self-criticism and my last answer to you all about being too nuanced, I think it cuts both ways. I think COVID um, both was a driver of drastically reduced crime in San Francisco. And, and obviously that's not the perception, but if you look at reported crime during the you know 912 days I was in office and you compare it with the 912 days before I was in office, we saw a, a drop of about 20% in reported crime. Both violent and nonviolent crime fell by double digits. Um, we're talking about somewhere in the neighborhood of 30,000 fewer reported crimes during my tenure than in the same period prior to my administration. I would love it if I could take credit for that and if my policies could, but in reality, I think um, you know, I think district attorneys and the policies we implement take time to yield results. I think COVID shut down tourism. Most businesses weren't open. So we didn't have bar fights. We didn't have people out, you know, uh, on college campuses getting date raped in the same proportion that we normally would, right? Really serious crimes. And, and also, um, you know, tourists coming to see our great city and having their cars broken into dramatic reduction for reasons that have very little to do with me or my policies and much more to do with just the broader trends in society during the pandemic. 
by the same token, and this is the other sort of other side of the coin, um, COVID led to um, a tremendous amount of anxiety. It led to school closures. It led to a surge in uh, in fear and racism and hate crimes. It led to uh, increase in gun violence all across the country. It led to contributed to all these things, right? Um, and it also contributed to people, I think, perceiving the world around them, especially in places like San Francisco, in ways that were much more reliant on social media and, and the internet um, than what had been true previously when we'd walk around our neighborhood and we'd, you know, we'd, we'd go out to restaurants. And um, it also meant that our streets for much of my tenure were abandoned. People weren't out and about. They weren't walking to work. We didn't have commuters or tourists. And, and that meant that the homeless population was much more visible. And in San Francisco, a lot of people associate homelessness with, with crime or with lack of safety. Uh, it also displaced certain categories of crime. So people who earn their living committing crimes, property crime, shoplifting or car break-ins, all of a sudden started targeting garages in neighborhoods that traditionally had never been, um, you know, had never experienced significant amounts of crime. And that meant we had an entire universe of folks who maybe were indifferent when there was a murder in a mostly black neighborhood or when a tourist car got broken into. But if it's their garage, that's close to home. That's home. And so it kind of mobilized politically a group of folks that otherwise might not have been disturbed by the policies um, that we were implementing or the reforms that we were we were we were spearheading. Um, so I, I do think that COVID and, and look, I'll, I'll give one last example of how it hurt. Um, a huge part of the work of an elected official, especially a citywide elected official um, who's new, who's an outsider, right, who's not part of the political family, uh, the city family, as they call it here in San Francisco. A big part of the job is to, is to build relationships, to show up for communities, for groups, for Democratic clubs, for other elected officials, for uh, cultural events. And I only had two months to do that. And then everything got shut down. And so it was really easy for my detractors, for the police union, for the folks uh, who, you know, the moderates, um, for the folks who wanted a scapegoat for other areas of, of failed policy, like our failure to build housing or our failure to provide public health services that prevent fatal overdoses or treat mental illness. All the folks responsible for those failures were all too happy to scapegoat criminal justice reform. And it was really hard to break through the stereotype, partly based on family history, as you mentioned, Alex, partly, um, you know, just based on, um, you know, stuff that our detractors had said even during the 2019 campaign, because I wasn't able to be in person with people. And it's just not the same, building relationships, building trust, getting critical feedback from the community, making the community feel heard, and, and actually being able to empower community leaders to play a role in policy generation and creation and implementation. We couldn't do that stuff in the ways that um, we would have been able to because of the pandemic. And it, it came at a very, very high political cost. All right, I think that's a, a solid explanation as to why it was so hard. Um, where I wanna go next? Um, I wanna get to... Okay, so if you had to summarize it for people, uh, what would you say is the number one cause of crime? And also, what's the number one way to help combat the perception of a rise in crime? Those are really big, difficult questions. I mean, I think it, it depends what kind of crime we're talking about. I mean, I think interpersonal violence, domestic violence, homicides between people who know each other is like really different than 
most property crime, right? But let me answer this way. In San Francisco back in 2018, right before I was elected, um, according to the Board of Supervisors, a legislative analyst report that they published, about 75% of people booked into the county jail for any crime were drug addicted, mentally ill, or both. In other words, maybe it's not a cause, but there's a strong correlation between people who end up getting arrested and people who have what I would consider first and foremost public health issues that need to be addressed. And so from my perspective, and this is what we campaigned on in 2019, we will make our communities safer if we are proactive about addressing those public health concerns before a crime is committed. So another way to illustrate this point, in San Francisco, the county jail is the number one provider of, of mental health services. Now, there's a couple of problems with that. One is county jails are not good places to give people health services. They're generally unsafe. They're generally unsanitary. People generally feel like they're coerced to be there because they are. They don't have a choice. They can't leave. Um, but more importantly, if somebody's in the county jail, then by definition, they were arrested for victimizing somebody or the community at large. And we should not be waiting. If we're serious about public safety, if we're serious about victims' rights, we should not be waiting until a crime is committed to intervene in ways that are humane and that can prevent crime. So we need to have universal treatment on demand. We need to have 24-7 access to residential beds for people who need to detox, for people who need mental health interventions. And of course, not everybody will avail themselves of those resources. But if we don't have them available in the first place, as we don't in San Francisco, then we are guaranteeing that more crimes will be committed. Um, so I think that's really a, a critical lens that most district attorneys don't, don't even bring to the conversation because again, it's not their job. Right? We don't have social workers. We don't run drug treatment facilities. Um, that's not what we do. We, you know, traditionally we have lawyers who present evidence and seek convictions. Um, and I've been trying to broaden the understanding of what our job should be when it comes to promoting public safety and enforcing laws equally. But I don't have the purse strings. I can't unilaterally create those drug treatment programs or those reentry housing services for people who need them. Um, the other thing, and and I'll I'll just you know kind of mention this briefly, but if 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 you're someone who subscribes to the prosecution and punishment are deterrence theories of public safety, right? Like the way that we make our community safe is we have really severe punishment on those who are arrested and that will deter other people from committing crime. This is one of the three or four most commonly discussed theories of um, what the purpose of the criminal justice system is. Um, there's a lot of research from the US and around the world um, that looks at massive amounts of data and, and, and considers this question, like what is an effective way to prevent crime? What kinds of policing, what kinds of punishment, um, what kinds of social services? And one thing we know is that the, the severity of punishment is a really, really weak correlation with deterrence for reasons that are pretty obvious. First of all, most people don't get arrested for crimes. Most crimes don't get reported. Most reported crimes don't result in an arrest. Most arrests don't result in a conviction. So there's this real kind of attenuation problem between the punishment that a particular prosecutor meets out and what's going through the mind of a person who's about to commit a crime. There's another problem, which is an obvious one and maybe close to home for our family. My mother didn't participate in the really horrific crime that she was arrested for and, and that she and my dad served so many decades behind bars for because she'd done some kind of a sophisticated analysis of 
what the likely punishment was or whether there was the death penalty or not in her state, she committed a crime because she didn't think she was going to get caught. She didn't think anybody was going to get killed. She didn't think anybody was going to get hurt. And she certainly didn't think she was going to get caught. And the reality is most people who commit crimes don't think they're going to get caught. If they think they're going to get caught, they probably won't commit the crime, which is why the National Institute for Justice says in a, in a, a report that they did on deterrence, that the single most effective deterrent is certainty of arrest. When, when you're in a jurisdiction where there's a high percentage of arrests for crimes that are committed, people are less likely to commit crimes. I don't care how drug addicted or mentally ill you may be. I don't care how irrational your thinking may be. If you know that you're going to get arrested, you're going to avoid committing a crime because it's, you may be high risk, you may not be risk averse, but it's going to ruin your day if you get arrested, at least your day, regardless of what happens next, right? You're going to jail. You're not going to get that next high. You're not going to go home to your family. You're going to lose your job. It's bad news. But in a place like San Francisco, the police are only making arrests in about 1% of reported car break-ins, right? There's a 95% chance in San Francisco that if you commit a crime and someone reports it, which often doesn't happen, you won't get arrested anyway. So the notion that me ratcheting down some punitive policies or seeking less draconian sentences is somehow creating open season for people to commit crimes is totally disconnected from both empirical data about crime in San Francisco and nationwide data about what actually is effective when it comes to deterrence. I think that, that's all I got. We'll hand it off to Aiden's few questions. Well, I think we'll, we'll leave out with a, with a couple. Um, First, I mean, since we're basically on the topic already, I guess, um, you know, in the U.S., as you've as you've basically explained, we largely understand justice as a, a punitive process, um, as opposed to what most progressive activists and politicians uh, would like to view it as, which is as a rehabilitative one. Um, but that's a difficult thing to kind of communicate to people who have been so um, informed by history, by society, by pop media, by the internet, that it's supposed to be about crime and punishment. What do you think we can do to kind of shift that thinking in the public sphere towards uh, rehabilitation? We often hear the argument that, you know, when you talk about rehabilitation services or reentry services, right, education for people in state prison or housing for people getting released from prison, you know, you'll often hear the argument, wait a second, I pay my taxes, I work really hard to put food on the table for my family. I've never committed a crime. Now you're just gonna give people as a reward? That's gonna incentivize crime, right? That's the sort of the argument we often hear. And I think it's problematic on a lot of levels, but let me just use that as a jumping off point for, for a, a brief answer here. Um, if we lift the bottom, if we have a more robust social safety net for everybody, right? If we had universal access to healthcare and to education and to housing, for example, the way they do in many Northern European countries, then people wouldn't be so upset at those kinds of things being provided to jails and prisons. And we would make a dramatic impact on reducing recidivism or the rate of rearrest after people are released. Uh, part of the problem is that in this country, and this is something that both leads to crime in the first place and makes it harder politically to provide the kinds of interventions after people are convicted of crimes that can really address root causes and, and be effective. Um, is that we don't have a meaningful social safety net 
Education is massively expensive. Healthcare is inaccessible to so many. Housing, impossible to attain for far too many millions in this country. And in a context where those kinds of basic, again, in, in other wealthy developed countries, it's unthinkable that you wouldn't be able to get access to basic medical services, no matter how poor you are. In a country where you know wealth is the end all and be all of those kinds of things, um, it becomes really frustrating to, to the working poor, to the middle class, to see folks convicted of crimes getting those services, even when those services are necessary to break a cycle of, of, of crime and, and incarceration. So I really think the answer, as much as we could talk about the politics within the criminal legal system and, and, and policy realm, I think you've got to zoom out. I mean, the, the, the criminal justice system is a dumping ground for problems that start with failures to build housing, with failures to invest in education or employment opportunities, with historic institutionalized racism. And um, the system, you know, the criminal legal system is really the place where all that gets dumped and then amplified in, in ways that uh, are, are profoundly problematic and which can never entirely be solved unless we look upstream at some of those um, some of those other related systems. Absolutely. I know, I know we uh, probably could keep going for a long time. I am, I am running out of time, unfortunately, but I'm more than happy to continue the conversation with you all uh, in a few weeks if, if you're so inclined. Sure. Well, I, I just end with a very, very quick question, which is, uh, what, are you, what are you looking forward to in the future? Are you still interested in public office? Have you thought about it? Where are you at? You know, yeah, I mean, definitely it's it's on the table. I mean, I, I loved the impact we were able to make over the last couple of years. I'm really proud of a lot of the work that, that we achieved. Um, and, you know, for me, I've never been someone who sought out a life as an elected official. It's not the end goal for me. I want to find ways that I, with my particular skills and life experience, can support the values and the communities um, that I represent. And if that means running for office again, I'm open to that. If it means um, doing something very different, you know, being a litigator, uh, which I love doing as well, or being a teacher, which I love doing. Um, I'm, you know, I'm, I'm really committed to the values and to the movement. Um, and I recognize that a movement cannot succeed in the long run if it's totally dependent on one person or a small group of people. It's gotta be diverse. It's got to have a deep bench of candidates and of leaders and of ideas. Um, and so I really want to respect the process that led me to run in the first place. And it may lead someone else to be a better candidate for district attorney or mayor or whatever the next office is. And I want to play a role in supporting them with everything from, you know, knocking on doors to fundraising um, to helping generate and implement um, data driven policies that make our communities stronger and more resilient. Well, fantastic. fantastic. I look forward to following you and whatever you do next. And thanks so much for your time. Thank you all. Really yeah. enjoyed the conversation and uh, hope we can do it in person one of these days. Excellent. Yeah, thanks for coming on, Chess. We'd love to have you on in the future. Sounds yeah, good. I'll look forward to you. Good. 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 Have a good vacation. Right. Thanks all. Appreciate you. Thank you, Chess.